making our work. With that being said, let's um, turn to Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9 and reading down through verse 16. Psalm 119, 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Lord, we are grateful for your word and we pray today that as we sit in it, as we consider it, as we meditate on it, Lord, that you would cause us to rejoice in it. Lord, I pray that you would allow us, Lord, to consider how we are relating to your word, taking in your word, remembering your word, allowing our life to be ordered by your word. So Lord, we ask for your help that your Holy Spirit would give insight and conviction into our own lives, that you might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this really uh, beautiful place in a place called the Westman Islands, just off the coast of Iceland. And in this time of year, maybe earlier, is the time when the puffins come and surround the island. Puffins, if you don't know, they're like these small little birds. That, that They're like seabirds that fly really quick, but they look like penguins. They're amazing. They have bright orange beaks and white and black bodies. And one of the best places that you can see them is in the Westman Islands. So we went, uh, when we lived there, out to the Westman Islands and went to the end of the main island to this place called Storhovdi. And Storhovdi means like the big head of the island. It's just this, this big set of round cliffs that you can climb up on the top. And as you get close to the edge of the cliffs, you see that all of these puffins fly in and they stay along the cliffs and just at the top. And if you sit right there close to the edge, they'll begin to fly and sit down around you. So it was one of our goals. This is one of the most peaceful places in the world to ever go. You can't hear any unnatural sound out on the end of this island. And the birds are out there. And of course, though, they're mostly scattered down along the cliffs. And I'm terrified of heights. Now, of course, if I'm strapped into something and I've got security, I'm not so afraid of heights, but it's when I know that just with one false move, you could fall to the end. And so at that time, five, six years ago, we took our four younger children out to the end of this island to look at the cliffs. <laughs> and I can remember as we were getting closer, I was getting more and more nervous, as you might imagine. And we came up to the edge, and finally, preemptively, I said, stay away from the cliffs, kids. Stay away. In fact, I, I, did, I did what I often do when I feel like there's a danger. I said, here's the line. I want everybody behind the line. Sit down. This is as close as we're going to get. And of course, they sort of are excited, right? They're just bubbling over, foolishly dancing on the edge of the cliff, and I got them all seated, 
and one who will remain nameless, wanted to see these puffins and stood up with excitement and seemed to be moving forward to the cliff. And it was windy. And I felt like it was perfectly timed with this gust of wind at her back. And all I could see in my eyes, whether it was true or not, was that the wind was picking her up to blow her right off the cliff. So I did what any dad would do. I grabbed out by, the, by her hood and I yanked her to safety. Now it remains to be seen and is probably a matter of large debate in our family whether it was necessary for me to do so. But I knew I was going to keep a guard over them. A guard. This is the idea that the psalmist is writing about as we think about temptation today. He's saying that, that although we live with an abundance of decisions and opportunities before us, that God uses his word like a guard over our life. That the, the sort of relationship of depth that we can have with God's word can act like a guard in unforeseen moments in our life and protect us from temptation. We've spent the summer considering the topic of temptation. We've been talking about fleeing to Christ to learn how to feast on him, delight in him, so we guard our life from things that ultimately will destroy us. And here in this passage, we discover what uh, Carrie Julian, our church planning resident, said this week is this insight, this idea that sometimes the best defense is a really good offense. He says right at the beginning, how can a young man keep his way pure? The writer obviously is a, a male and just reflecting. It's poetry, so this is reflective, but it's applicable to all of us. How can we keep our life pure? And the answer is very simple. By guarding it according to your word. That the word of God plays a guarding role in our life. Psalm 119, which we're reading here, is an alphabetic, alphabetical poem in praise of God's word. There's no author identified in scripture itself. It's often identified with King David, and some have even associated it with Ezra. But either way, it stands unique in scripture as the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's one long poem of praise for God's word. I said earlier it was an alphabetical poem. Um, you know, it follows the Hebrew alphabet something like an acrostic. If you were reading this in Hebrew, you'd realize the first stanza, every, every line begins with A. Or Aleph. And, the, and then the second stanza, stanza, every line begins with B. It's one of the reasons that I make all of my points like this. If you pay close attention, I love to alliterate. I'm just trying to be like the psalmist. But it's a way also of just sort of crafting and delighting in something to bring it into shape and to think long about how to express it in artful manner. And that's what the writer's doing about God's word. He wants to sit in it long enough to be able to artfully express it. Well, after an introduction to the topic of God's word in the first stanza, the author moves into this second stanza we're focused on today to a question pertinent for our series. The stanza is the answer to the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can we guard ourselves offensively against temptation? And like good poetry is intended to do, he slows us down to reflect on the answer. 
he answers it, but he spends time looking around so that we understand how it is that a close relationship with God's word can help us and guard us against temptation and sin. This stanza is the answer to that question. By guarding it according to your word. And as we consider the topic of temptation, how to have power and victory over sin in our life, this section in verses 9 through 16 reminds us that the goal is not simply sin avoidance, but delight in God and his word. You see, one of the things that you may have have not yet discovered is that the instruction of God's word is not simply about sin avoidance. The series we've done on temptation is not just about avoiding falling off the cliff, but being able to sit in the glory of God and enjoy what we see. Enjoy what's been revealed. And so our main point today is really that delighting in God's word guards us against temptation. And here in this section, the the writer of the psalm exemplifies this this sort of relationship with God's word and this sort of guarding of his life that he is celebrating here. He exemplifies it and through it we can learn to delight in God's word as well. So there are five ways that he slows us down and helps us begin to see this. And I want you to just walk, I'm just going to walk through these five ways rather swiftly. But the first one that he shows us is if we're going to guard our life with God's word, we need to set our focus. We need to set our focus. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I don't know if you realize this, but Neuroscience confirms that we cannot take in all of the stimuli around us from our surroundings all day long. Part of what happens is under the surface, our mind strains out things that are deemed less important so that we can recognize and see things that are prioritized. So the the next thing you're likely to see in life is whatever you've most recently been thinking on. We tend to see what we've been dwelling on. And, and so, so, you know, it's interesting. So what gets prioritized? Well, generally speaking, the things that get prioritized are whatever we have most recently set ourselves upon. What we're dwelling on. Well, that should be no surprise to us. The scriptures have long pointed to the fact that this is the case and implored us to set our mind on God and his word in a wholehearted way. Because in doing so, we begin to see his ways before us. We begin to be guarded from straying from things that draw us away from him. It sets the tone for what we discover as we walk in the world if we first set our heart on the word. Here in verse 10, we're employed to join the psalmist in a wholehearted seeking of the Lord. When we are set on seeking the Lord, we will find that we are far less likely to wander from His commandments. The assumption is that we do not find what the Lord really has for us as we ignore His instruction and guidance. Seeking the Lord in this way is shorthand here for striving to live a life where we are in fellowship with Him, where we're in step with Him. 
where we see the path that he is walking before us in life. We're seeking out a focus on a life that honors God and we're walking alongside his will and his purposes, communing with him as we walk through life. And he says, in seeking the Lord, in setting our focus on that, we guard ourselves from straying from his commandments. I don't know if you've ever tracked an animal. When I was 12, I mean, I hope I don't upset anybody about this. I know I live in the suburbs now and not rural Pennsylvania. I shot a deer, and I didn't make a very good shot. I was 12, alone in the woods. I don't know why that was the case. I probably should not have had a gun in the woods at 12 years old by myself. Nonetheless, it was bleeding, and I tracked it, and, and I, I was wholeheartedly focused on finding it. I wasn't tempted to go to the left or right. I was going wherever it was headed because that's what I wanted to find. Thankfully, I was able to find it eventually after like three hours, doing everything wrong, and it was food. But, but listen, it, it sets kind of the, the point. Like when we're seeking something, we're not tempted to go other places. And this is what the psalmist says. By seeking the Lord, by setting our sights on what it is we're pursuing, we are guarded from straying, from wandering into other things. So one of the best things that you can do is set your heart daily, regularly, multiple times throughout the day on honoring God. When we set our sights on honoring God, we're less likely to stray and wander into other things. The first thing he shows us to do here is to set our focus. So guarding ourselves against temptation begins with setting our focus regularly on the Lord as our priority so that we see temptation as a form of wandering away from what we're really after. That's the first thing. The second way we guard our life by God's word is to store up our food. Store up our food. It's interesting that so much of the language here in Psalm 119 is the language of survival and preparation. If you look with me in the next verse, as he continues to, if you think about this, as he continues to think from several angles about the value of God's word, first he talks about seeking the Lord and then he stops and he tries to express it in another way and he looks from a different side and he says, store it up like food. Hide it away. Make sure you have a steady supply close at hand. Psalm 119 is this language of survival. It speaks of hiding God's word in your heart, but the real idea there is store it up. He's keeping it nearby that it may be a nourishment to his spiritual life in times of unexpected need. A couple of things to notice in the text. This phrase, stored up, gives us the idea that there are times of unexpected need when spiritual energy needs to be refreshed by what we're able to carry with us easily. The use of the idea of storing up in the heart is an expression of nearness. It's close by. If you consider the inward to outward movements of our decisions and actions, the heart is the place where our life emerges. This is where it starts. This is the beginning point. In biblical terms, it's the center of our conscious and inward life. We consider things in our heart. Our most intimate desires and thoughts and recollections take place in our heart. 
And so he says to store up God's word nearby in our heart because it's the place of most usefulness for us as we contend with our life and the world and temptation. We need God's word readily available and near to our most secret thoughts because it is there where we can safely deal with temptation through God's word before it manifests itself in ways that are damaging. Store up God's word in your heart. At our house, we've been recently watching the most current season of the survival show, Alone. Any Alone junkies out there? Come on, you've got to be some of you. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but this one, it's the goal is for 10 people to go into the Arctic wilderness of Canada and last 100 days, only taking a few items. They got to build a life for themselves and feed themselves and survive. And in this season, one of the participants trying to last 100 days on his own in the Arctic wilderness actually kills a muskox in this crazy scene of hand-to-hand combat. So if you go watch it, I've already ruined that part for you. He succeeds. And at the moment, as I was watching this, I was like, I was like, this guy is going to have all the food that he needs. I mean, he's got it all. I mean, this thing is gigantic. Surely he can't eat a whole muskox in 100 days. It was huge. And he starts going to work on it. And at that moment, you know, it's like it's right there available for him. All the food he needs for the rest of his time there. And then comes the problem. He's two miles from his house. He's two miles away from where he's already built his shelter. And this is a large animal. I mean, it looks like it's got to be like 2,000 pounds or something crazy like that. And although the food is immediately available to him there, he has to undertake the lengthy process of of processing it, preparing it, preserving it, and moving it close to his home and properly storing it for future use and protecting it from predators. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this might not go so well. The psalmist says this sort of processing and storing and preparing and setting away is necessary for us to be able to store up God's word for the day of need. That we actually have to interact with it in ways that put it to memory, that put it to familiarity, that bring it into ready availability for our lives in our heart where it's most consequential. The psalmist says if we want to guard our life with God's word, we need to store up our food. If you don't have a way in which you are are putting God's word to memory or you are storing up the ideas for familiarity, you need to figure out how it is that you're going to have a close enough relationship with God's word that every moment you are not having to run out and try to figure out what you believe about something. It's time for us to be rooted in God's word and and for it to sort of have life in our inward hearts so that as we face life, there's a lot of what we need is already there in the moment. That's the kind of relationship with God's word he's talking about. But he he points us to a third thing. If we're going to be guarded by God's word, we need to really see the prize. We need to set our focus, we need to store up our food, but we need to see our prize. In the middle of that, it would be easy to sound like it's God's word that is ultimately the goal, but he stops in verse 12 and he says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Blessed are you, O Lord. 
teach me your statutes. Now, it's easy because we're just used to hearing kind of this spiritual language, right? Like, be blessed and blessed, you know, God's blessed and bless God and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we've got hashtags for all this stuff now. But, but stop for a minute and see what he's saying. He's actually in the middle of celebrating what God has communicated about himself. He's stopping to see God. And he's looking at God's life and he says, God, your life is blessed. <laughs> what you are is the epitome of joy and satisfaction. It's everything. It's something that doesn't exist in anyone else in this world. There's just this overflowing nature to God. That's what blessing means. An overflowing nature of joy and abundance. And he stops and looks and says, God is a being of, uh, that, that overflows with abundance and joy. And, and I want that life. <laughs> That's what's happening. He's saying if there's any life I want to imitate, is there, if there's any life that I want to possess, God, it's, it's your life. Would you train me and teach me to have a life like yours? You see, this is the idea. It's easy as we talk about temptation to consider that the goal is sin avoidance. Let me say it clearly. If you focus on sin avoidance, you will not get very far or be very inspired in the process. Avoiding sin is an entirely negative goal and it doesn't give positive shape to a life of purpose. It doesn't compel us on in difficult moments. It doesn't produce a real vision for godliness. We need something more than that. So what we see here is in the middle of this stanza, he stops and remembers that a life imitating God is the goal. That's the prize. Being near to God, knowing God. Let me just point out what can seem like an obvious point again. Easily overlooked, the psalmist vision of God's life is that it is, is beautiful. And it's the sort of life that he wants. He aspires to it. He wants to be like God so he can experience life the way God experiences life. This is exactly what God invites us into. He wants us to be rooted in Him. Jesus describes this sort of abundance like abiding in the vine. He has life to give that nourishes that we might bear much fruit, that we might have fruitful, abundant, joyful, settled lives. He's not ignoring the difficulties. He's not saying turn a blind eye to the terrible moments of the past week. He's saying in the midst of that, in the difficulties we face, whether it's the ones that we're in the midst of now, or the personal ones you might be encountering, that there is an eternal rootedness in the promise of God available to us. And that in seeking the Lord, in, in hearing His word, it teaches us to desire to be connected to God. That our deepest hope is really ultimately in what he brings and gives. And that he has such great abundance that God is willing to give it to us in supply in the moment that we need it. We need to see the prize. The psalmist stops around and looks around and he doesn't want someone else's life and the blessings of his neighbor. He wants God's. 
And the result is that he then obviously is ready to submit himself to whatever God has to say. You see, what happens is, so many of us have disconnected God's instruction from God's life in abundance. We've determined that God's instruction is not for our good. He doesn't have our best in mind. Therefore, it's restrictive. Therefore, it's, it doesn't lead to our greatest thriving. It cuts us off from what we could really get if God just cut us loose from his awful restrictions. But see, when he sees God for who he really is, and who God has shown himself to be in Jesus, one who, who overflows with abundance toward us even though we don't deserve it, then he begins to trust God and says, now you teach me how to be like that. You teach me to be how, the kind of person that can give forward, that can overflow in abundance, that can be like a tree planted in water in a time of drought, bearing fruit in every season. Lord, Show me that. Show me the statutes and principles and directions and I will go there with you. I would suggest if that's not your relationship to God's instruction, you need to take a look at God a little longer. That what's really wrong isn't that you don't want to obey some commandments, it's that you don't really know God and trust Him. Fourth thing he tells us to do is speak it out. Verses 13 and 14, he continues to help us understand how we can have this rich relationship with God's word. And he says, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Notice, notice the words declare and testimonies here as he begins to think about his relationship with God's word. As we continue to think about having our life guarded by the word of God and how we can be people who have lives ordered around it, the psalmist moves us from inward consideration of God's word to outward proclamation. He actually says a deepening relationship with God's word begins to take place as we move God's word from reflection to expression. We don't often think about the role that expression plays in deepening our grasp on something, but as someone who for the better part of 20 years has had to stand in front of people and explain God's word, I will tell you that the biggest blessing has been for me. Me having to wrestle with how to, how to think about an idea and to express that idea, how to counter my own disbelief and, and really wrap my head and my heart around it until I've owned it and can express and rejoice in it. All I've tried to do in the 10 years that I've pastored this church is, is bring out of the storage and overflow of my own life a love for God's word and an excitement to proclaim what actually are the real benefits I have no desire to sell something that I'm not feeding on myself. But, he, but listen, there's a galvanizing process that takes place in expression. When, you know, the truth is this, for some of us, we need to start talking more with other people about the goodness of God's instruction so that we can experience its deepening clarity in our own life. Your private faith really is leading to a meager faith. Your unwillingness to connect and celebrate who God is and to really wrap your head means that you're probably not addressing the disbelief in your own heart. 
Because listen, everything that we love, we express in celebration. C.S. Lewis's key insight in wrestling with the Psalms, of which this was included, is that he found that God was all the time saying, praise me, give thanks for me, celebrate me. And he thought it was like a doting old woman, he said, who wanted attention. Until he realized that praise completes the celebration. That actually expression deepens, clarifies, and completes our joy. That it's what we do with everything that we love, we begin to speak it out. And if we're not ready to speak it out, we might need to go back and see how much we love it. We need to wrestle inside until we're willing to own it and speak it and rejoice in it. And then in doing so, we gain clarity as we help tell other people and share the testimony of God's goodness and kindness with others. It goes from private to public and it becomes ours. And we're encouraged. We all grow when we move our private experience to public record. The focus in 13 and 14 is declaring with the lips, giving testimonies of God's faithfulness to his word. Listen, the best way we can let our guard down is by not speaking the truth of God's word over one another's life. But these sort of testimonies also help us individually. You don't, listen, you don't really know a subject well until you talk about it with clarity. Some of you need to start speaking what you are learning about God and his word into the life of other people. You need to connect with people to share what you know and learn. For some of you, you feel really stagnant right now because you've learned a lot about God, but you're not in conversation helping other people discover it. And part of the next step of maturity, rejoicing, excitement, and guarding your own life is that you wouldn't just store it up for yourself, but you would have it ready for others and begin to engage them with it. We need to speak it out. There's one final thought from the psalm that I want us to see. And it's here that we need to slow down the pace. Fifth point, slow down the pace. If your life is going to be guarded by God's word and you're going to have this rich relationship with it, we're going to have to do something that's totally countercultural in Northern Virginia. We're going to have to slow down and be with God. We're going to have to dwell in his word And let his word dwell in us. When we were at the beach earlier this summer, it was my night to cook for our crew of 24 people. Large crew. I decided I wanted to make some ribs, so I went to the store and was there in the meat department. And I was trying to pick out some ribs, and I was trying to decide between some of the pre-marinated ones and some that I would just marinate myself. And in some sense, I was a little pressed for time. And the guy in the meat department said, hey, if you want it done quick, you can just boil them and throw them on the grill for a few minutes. Now listen, he ain't wrong. You you can. You can do that. But should you? (laughs) I mean, should you ever do that to a rib? I thought to myself, ain't nobody want boiled ribs. Just imagine if for a moment you're driving around looking for a restaurant and you see what you think is a barbecue place and it says on the sign, fast boiled pork barbecue. Bam. You pull over right away, right? Listen, fast boiled Bible is about as good as fast boiled pork. But here we're told that if we want it right, 
we're going to need to slow down and meditate on it. We want this stuff that's slow roasted, that starts early in the morning, that stops and considers, that looks at it from every angle, that brings out the richness that is there, that is only only experienced by doing something like what the psalmist does here and writing a poem about it. You don't write poems quickly. You have to think and consider. You have to look at it from every angle. In fact, poetry is about slowing down. It's about taking in art. If we're going to have a life that is rich toward God and guarded from temptation, it will be a life that slows down and takes in God's word and sets, sets right down and delights to go nowhere else for a while. I mean, I just want to, I just want to ask you, when, you know, in, in a world of microwave devotionals, right? One-page devotionals. Like, I, I'm not cutting it down. I mean, if you, it's good to have on the run, going. But when's the last time you just sat with God in his word? Oh yeah, I know. You're busy. I get it. We're busy. We got lots to do. I, mean, I don't want to guilt trip anybody, but I mean, we can get through Netflix, right? You can binge a season or two or something. But when's the last time you slowed down and just marinated in God's word? I mean, really tried to understand it. Took the slow road. Took out the camping chair and sat down. Stopped yourself on the end of the peak and let the puffins fly in. And begin to sit down and to walk. Saw it from every angle. Meditated on it. Thought about how it connected with your life. Thought about the events going on and what, what God wants from you right now. Where you're going. What pathways you might have missed that he's still inviting you to. How you might be misunderstanding that hardship that's come into your life because you passed it off quickly. You didn't stop to think that maybe God was bringing a gift that you didn't realize was there. Had the chance to really rest in the unchanging eternal wisdom of God over your life you meditated on the truth of his word. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> but we become convinced we need everything but that. We need to hurry off and fix this and finish that. And life is driving us, driving us right off the cliff. But God's word guards us and promises more than that. And the truth is, God uses moments like this to reach out and grab us and sit us back down and to say, you need to stop for a second. You see, we have this, this beautiful promise that, that as we come to God in empty faith, we bring nothing he brings everything, and we entrust ourselves to him that God takes ownership of us. He, he loves us, and because of what he did for us through Jesus Christ, he is guarding our life, that the word of God guards our life because Jesus, the living word, has destroyed the enemy, his grip on us, 
his demands over us. And there's only one voice in all the universe that really matters right now. One voice. And it's the voice of our good shepherd. Now maybe you've never slowed down enough to believe that God really wants to be your good shepherd. Maybe everything you've known about God is backward from what the psalmist is celebrating here and what we see in his word. Maybe you've been trying to just keep him happy by doing some of the good things and avoiding some of the sins, and you've never thought, this is a shepherd who wants to lead me right now in this season of my life. Listen, if you've never yielded your heart to God in a way that says, teach me your statutes, today needs to be the day when you do that. And maybe you've slipped into a time of arrogance in your life where you figured enough things out that you thought you had it, right? But God's disassembling that and showing you that what you really need is Jesus. And today, God may be inviting you for the first time to turn from your sin and trust that the good shepherd has laid down his life for you. This is the gospel, the good news. We didn't gather here because we've been great about dwelling richly in God's word. We gathered here to remember that, that the one who is inviting us to know his word is the good shepherd who has already guarded our way and is leading us into life. This is the good news. That God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience eternal, abundant life. And he's shown it so clearly in that he sent Jesus, the word who took on flesh, to live the kind of life we could have and hope for and to pay for the kind of failure that we've committed by taking our punishment on the cross. So that could be dealt with and we could be invited into this life, into a life of resting in God, rejoicing in God, and knowing that in his promises, we will see the Lord who we seek. And maybe it's been a while since you rested in the Lord, in his word. Maybe today what you need to do to respond is to just make it a point this week to slow down, to think about your relationship with God's word, to deepen it, and figure out how it is that you're going to store it up and seek the Lord and, and rest in him. But listen, the Holy Spirit that may be prompting you is the spirit of the good shepherd who has life ahead. Let's bow our heads as we go into a time of prayer. Lord, I pray that as we respond to this moment and this time that you, O oh Lord, would give us sight to see through your word what you want us to know about who you are. Lord, give us a hunger for what is good, a taste for what is eternal. Lord, we pray that we would come to know your word with joy rather than combating it in our own disbelief. We would trust it as the gift of the good shepherd. Lord, that it would lead us and guide our life that would guard our path from wandering. Lord, we ultimately, we want to know you. It's you we seek. You are the one that is eternal and blessed. Give us eyes to see and pursue today all that you want us to do.
In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment,